0: The priesthood is traditionally understood to entail descending dimensions of mediation by which the priest conveys spiritual goods to us and ascending mediations by which the priest helps lead us to God by his example and love of God. I'd like to speak in this essay about each of these internal to a historical narrative. The first part of the narrative begins in the Reformation and the second in our own. Each is about crisis in the priesthood, and they come together in the consideration of the sanctification of the priesthood for our own historical moment. Part one, then, descending mediations. To say this is to construct a new and different church distinct from the Church of Jesus Christ. Hoc enim est novam ecclesiam construere. These words were spoken by Thomas de Vio Cajetan in October of 1518 in the course of a public debate with the young Martin Luther at a time when the Augustinian monk was still in communion with the Catholic Church. Earlier that year, Pope Leo X had sent Cajetan as his representative from Rome to the Diet of Augsburg, from which he was dispatched for theological dispute with the aspiring reformer. Now, Cajetan at the time was the master of the Dominican Order, a cardinal of the Catholic Church, and Archbishop of Palermo. He was a vocal promoter of reform within the clergy and the curia, advocating for clerical asceticism and learning, himself pioneering scholastic commentary on Aquinas, while also favoring the emergence of Renaissance biblical studies. He and Luther shared a common concern for the reform of the Church. The debate took place October 12th through 15th, approximately one year after Luther's promulgation of the 95 Theses and two years before the publication of the Babylonian captivity of the church, which was to mark a more definitive break with Rome. The subject under discussion by the two men was the so-called power of the keys. How is it that the forgiveness of God is communicated to a penitent through the sacrament of confession? Does this depend upon the apostolic authority of the Pope and the bishops, as well as the jurisdictional delegation of a priest who can in turn grant absolution? It was no accident that Luther raised radical questions about this very precise issue. Behind this specific sacramental question stands a more fundamental issue of authority in the Church. Does God give grace to us through the descending mediations of the Church, and if so, how? As Cajetan saw at the time, the treatment of the apostolic authority in one domain carries over logically into others. How one treats the sacrament of reconciliation touches immediately, in turn, upon such topics as the perennial truth of Catholic dogma, which has been defined by the authorities of the Church, the nature and number of the sacraments, and the nature of apostolic succession. In their debate with one another, Luther and and Cajetan elaborated two vastly divergent visions of Christianity which anticipated subsequent developments in early modernity. Christendom stood in the balance. Luther, for his part, is finding his way in this early text towards the notion that justification occurs by faith alone apart from works of the law or any mediations of sacramental agency. He claims against Cajetan that the classical tripartite of sacramental confession of sins, contrition, and ensuing satisfaction are not sufficient to procure forgiveness in Christ, except insofar as they are accompanied by the penitent's inward act of faith in Christ, as well as, significantly, the subjective certitude that the sins which are being confessed have been definitively forgiven. He goes so far as to say that in the absence of inner certitude in my particular salvation by Christ for these sins that I have confessed, the sacrament leads not to salvation but to condemnation. What is radical about this in context is that there is no priestly mediation of the forgiveness of sins. The subject's interior judgment of his own righteousness before God by grace is the determining condition for the reception of grace, prior to, and in some real sense, apart from any external right or ecclesial measure of evaluation. Furthermore, the individual sincerity of the subject in the act of faith is sufficient proof of the spiritual authenticity of the person before God. Luther would co- later come to stipulate, a penitent's confession of sins to another person serves merely as a cathartic or therapeutic external occasion to formulate the interior act of repentance, so as to receive the vocal confirmation from another of the forgiveness that comes from Christ alone and never through the mediation of the minister. In his mature period, Luther would famously claim that justification by faith alone is the article on which the church stands or falls. And indeed, as Yves Congar pointed out, significant ecclesiological consequences stem directly from Luther's powerful idea for if Christ is related directly to each individual by the gift of righteousness, mediated only through the subject's personal conscience when reading Scripture, then the hierarchy of mediations is abolished in a twofold way. The believer does not depend on sacramental, sacramental mediations to obtain justification by faith. Even baptism, for Luther in his mature work, serves as the outward evidence and seal of election but should not be understood as the instrumental cause of the grace of faith. And indeed, there are no sacraments of ordination or penance as classically understood in the Catholic tradition. He reduces the sacraments to two, baptism and the Eucharist. Second, there is no direct dependence for Luther on antecedent teaching tradition. It is scripture alone that guarantees the believer's cognitive encounter with God Councils of the Catholic Church are considered fallible reflections of preceding generations of of potentially varying worth. It follows from this that, of course, there exists no apostolic, papal, or episcopal jurisdiction of the visible church as a condition for one's integration into the spiritual communion of the body of Christ. The life of the church is identified essentially with the invisible communion of the predestined and the elect, not the visible political society of the the public Catholic faithful. Luther's theology was a response to what was widely perceived in his own era as a profound crisis in the church, a crisis of faith in Catholic teaching and sacramental practice, a crisis of priestly witness of life affected by corruption of mores among the clergy, including in the episcopacy. Luther's response was simple if radical, do away entirely with the priestly vocation as traditionally understood. In the face of priestly scandal, one option is simply to reject the medieval structures of mediation that the church has always claimed are of apostolic origin. Luther's brilliance as a theologian is matched by the consequential character of his thought, for in effect, along with Zwingli and Calvin, he created the conditions of a new age one in which the individual in his religious conscience is the primary mediator of truth and grace. The modern era of the liberal subject, who is free from dependence on the mediations of pre-existent religious institutions, is very hard to envisage without the anticipation of the Reformation. Immanuel Kant was a self-consciously secular moralist, and we might say Pelagian ethicist, who rebelled decidedly against his Lutheran roots. He nonetheless maintained an essential emphasis on the immediate access of the internal conscience to the procurement of the conditions of ethical righteousness. For the procedural liberalism to which Kant's thought has given rise in our own era, each individual is responsible for the construal of his own moral evaluation of meaning and value without dependence on preceding standards of nature, tradition, or any religious institution. Personal self-evaluation and inward moral sincerity are the primary means by which one attains genuine authenticity. Some today have argued that the primacy of the internal forum in Protestant life has given way to the secular culture of private judgment, and the Lutheran option of a merely therapeutic confession of sins has given way to the culture of psychological therapies no longer connected with traditional Christianity. Luther might abhor aspects of our secular liberal world, but his theology also arguably helped inadvertently to create it. And indeed, the cultural vitality of contemporary liberalism is quite powerful even today, especially in countries that were formerly Protestant. Let us return to the debate of 1518 and its other interlocutor. For Cajetan, Cajetan, the essential mediations of the Church are of divine uh, divine institution and apostolic origin. The Episcopal authority of the Church has its source in the community of the New Testament. Christ instituted the seven sacraments. The visible Eucharistic communion of the Church is a perpetual source of grace for believers, not merely the sign of the invisible activity of God. Cajetan argues against Luther that faith alone is not sufficient for union with God. Theological hope and love are also necessary. The church is a church of love. Here we find an echo of Aquinas on justification, and one that also prefigures the later teaching of the Council of Trent. Justification occurs by grace, not by natural works. But grace is at work in us by way of faith, hope, and love. At the same time, interestingly for Cajetan, private judgments of our subjective self-estimation are fallible. He, He harbors on this point with Luther. We cannot be certain that we effectively love God simply because of our internal sincerity. We can only form a practical judgment of this based on prudence. Consequently, we need to refer ourselves to external references of the church's teaching regarding the Christian life and the natural law. By consulting the teaching and practice of the Church, we acquire practical certitude over time that we are living with God effectively by recourse to the sacraments and the disciplines of the spiritual life. Here the individual acquires moral authenticity by referring himself or herself to the institutions and authorities of the pre-existing Catholic community. Cajetan's vision of confession of course also has implications for ecclesiology. The scriptures are read and interpreted rightly within the context of sacred tradition and infallible dogmatic pronouncements. The church is able to identify the spiritual customs of the gospel as objective standards of human sanctification, for example, through the canonization of saints, and these are not determined by the private interpretations or whims of individuals or by sectarian movements. Grace is given to us through the objective mediations of the church, notably her sacraments. If Luther is indirect, indirectly making room for the conditions of modern life without dependency on Catholic mediations, Cajetan is also articulating a modern Catholic vision of reform through self conscious, disciplined reappropriation of the tradition in what is considered most essential as distinguished from what is considered accidental. In an age of intense ideological conflict and in the midst of cultural fracturing, The modern world has turned out to become one of secular contestation of the Catholic tradition in many respects, but also of uh, irremediable ideological pluralism and in that pluralism, opportunity. In that space, the church and the priesthood have thrived there where there has been a a discernment of what is essential to the life of the church, a presentation, a preservation of this life in estuaries of sanctification and learning, and a coherent missionary witness to the mystery of Christ in the context of new circumstances. One characteristic of priestly sanctification then entails the taking of responsibility for the authentic transmission of the sacred mediations of the church. In short, The priesthood is renewed in holiness when its members convey the integral teaching of the church eloquently and effectively and celebrate the sacraments of the church in a worthy and sublime way. Numerous major priestly initi- initiatives would, re- would emerge in the wake of the Tridentine reform of the Church in the 16th and 17th centuries that would seek to take renewed responsibility for these mediations of the Church, her sacramental life, and the teaching of sound doctrine, in accord with the life of priestly holiness, and often in a vast and extraordinarily ambitious, and we should say also highly effective missionary movement that spans through the course of the world. We could think here of the seedbed of the Seminary of Charles Borromeo in Milan, the founding of the Oratory in Rome that spread then and had major consequences in France, the vast and consequential work of the Society of Jesus, which lit a fire of missionary work upon the world, the extraordinary work of the Vincentians and Sulpicians who formed people for generations in the priesthood. And this is only to name some of the sacerdotal organizations without forgetting the contribution of the Ursulines, Carmelites, and other major early modern religious orders of women, both active and contemplative. The paradox of the Counter-Reformation was that there was coexistence of death and fecundity. In a moment of crisis, it is essential to create estuaries of sanctification, where the learned transmission of the faith is maintained as allied with the authentic love of Christ, devoted service to God, societal cultivation of virtue, and a decidedly missionary spirit. If the priesthood is in crisis in our own time, it is in part because we have failed in some sectors of the church to believe sufficiently in the objective mediations of the church and the organic life of institutions required for the transmission of the priestly vocation. Cajetan himself was a person of profound cultural inventiveness, writing modern commentaries on scripture, engaging fruitfully in the controversies of his day, interpreting Aquinas to speak to his epic, and bringing the riches of the past into the age of the Renaissance. He did this in his own religious order in an effective way, and in some sense, he anticipated the later forward-thinking work of his Dominican confrere, a certain St. Pius V. And today, we could, the tatis by analogy, learn from their examples. Part two, a story within our own time. The most significant secular and religious disputes of our own age are not about sacramental confession. In fact, they are about human sexuality. Luther saw that the forgiveness of sins constituted symbolically the neuralgic point of his medieval civilization. And he asked the key question of his age, how can I find a gracious God? However, for our contemporaries, the symbolic locus of cultural controversy is in the human body. And the core question is, how can I enact my human freedom and be truly autonomous in my sexual life? In our own age, it seems that sex has become the symbolic medium that both evokes and depicts our concept of individual autonomy and self-determination. It has acquired an extraordinary political force. However painful it is to think about this topic, it is, in fact, a reality. Now, Aquinas notes three significant and relative things about human sexuality. First, it naturally leads to the generation and social education of children. So consequently, it just does always have a political and a religious dimension. It's the family, after all, that procreates and educates children, and that therefore replenishes society and builds up the common good. So it's a deeply political reality, the human family. Likewise, God creates the human spiritual soul in each human being, which is the basic reason why we treat the life and death of human beings differently from that of other animals. Consequently, the use of the sexual powers inevitably borders upon the domain of the sacred. It is the transmission of the human being made in the image of God. How we relate to our own human sexuality and its openness to life is always bound up with how we relate to the divine and vice versa. Second, Aquinas notes that sexuality is the human activity that produces the greatest pleasure in the sensible domain. It provides a psychological catharsis to human beings, and it can therefore prove readily addictive and render human beings dependent. By this very fact, it can also create intense bonds of attachment between persons or lead persons to seriously mistreat one another or betray one another in the pursuit of pleasure in ways that are unjust. Consequently, there exists a perpetual challenge in the human community to orient the search for pleasure under, within, and for the rational pursuit of other human goods, including the life of the family and human justice in society, so that sexual activity contributes to the spiritual maturation of persons and the common life of society in friendship with God. Third, and perhaps most mysteriously, Aquinas notes that the search for sexual pleasure, apart from and independently of the goods of marriage, leads almost immediately to alienation from God and sacred things, not only for individual persons, but even for societies at large. All human beings seek solace from human companionship and sensual, and all, as human beings seek solace from human companionship and sensible pleasures, divorced from religious and familial ends of sexuality. The human inclination towards reproductive coupling and parenthood does remain ineradicably inscribed in each human person, but of course it is resistible. Consequently, our desire for reproduction and parenthood can become a neuralgic domain that evokes profound inner conflicts in our own deepest desires for happiness. And societal tensions can emerge from these frustrated desires, tensions that are in part about religion. When people seek the communion that sexuality portends due to its own nature in them and uh, and that it promises, but they do so outside the reproductive family unit, unit, they tend to do so in ways that are cut off from the context in which those very promises can actually be delivered. We might speak here of a frustrated search for transcendence and communion often undertaken in ways that can lead to anti-religious antipathies. Now let us add another consideration that's one taken from our own era and not from Aquinas. We can readily observe that a unique relationship has developed in the wake of the sexual revolution between modern technology, human sexuality, and personal autonomy. I'm speaking here of the role of of technology in our contemporary culture. The modern liberal person understands his or her own sexual identity, especially in the wake of the technological innovation of modern contraception. Now, I should note here my my claim is not really a moral one about the moral teaching of the church on contraception, although I adhere to that teaching. It's more um, an anthropological or philosophical claim. For example, mainstream secular feminism takes it to be axiomatic that for women to be socially and politically free and self-determining today, natural fertility must be rendered optional technologically. Now philosophically, this is a claim that is very significant, historically novel, it's radical in the etymological sense of the term, and it's entirely questionable. But it goes largely unstudied. Instead, the effective practice of separation of sexuality from reproduction is taken for granted in our culture and has given rise to a world that is continually seeking to renegotiate the boundaries of autonomy in relation to sexual identity. This isn't something I say for moral reasons so much as to try to understand the world we live in. Why, for example, is active homosexuality now such a significant political symbol of secular self-determination? or the denizens of our contemporary liberal culture. Well, presumably because in the wake of the sexual revolution, all sexual activity has been redefined, according to a new ethic, as moral sexuality, just to the extent that it's concerned with the freely agreed upon pursuit of pleasure and companionship between mutually consenting persons. In short, if it is consensual pursuit of pleasure, it is morally justified. But perhaps more profoundly, it's ethical precisely to the extent that it serves to facilitate the exploration and therefore the augmentation of basic human freedom. It is good because it expands human freedom in culture. In other words, the culture in which uh, previous taboos are transcended is also the culture in which human freedom is continually augmented. If we follow this line of thinking, then the profound cultural shift on same-sex marriage that's taking place in Western culture in a very relatively short amount of time really makes sense as a kind of widespread cultural conversion to a new moral calculus. It's a widespread acceptance, it's widespread acceptance has come to function practically in our culture as a litmus test for the ethical terms of engagement in liberal society at large. To be in favor of it is to be in favor of this new ethics and even in a sense to be in favor of a new and better way of being human, a new ontology of human liberal freedom. In case this isn't been controversial enough, let me continue. <laughs> I think there's a profound coherence here, a logical coherence, with the aims of the transgender movement. Its advocates, the advocates of the transgender movement, readily concede that human beings are truly biologically male or female as they are born, organically speaking. They're not naive about this. They can they can identify readily that people are either male or female biologically, but this is only a physiological given, inherited at birth. Human beings retain the freedom to consign their biological condition to new purposes based on their psychological wishes and needs and in view of their realization of their own greater autonomy and their theoretical view of the world. You can choose your own sex as an experience of your own inner freedom. The respect of another to redefine his sexual identity is the sign of an ascendant freedom that is prophetic in character, indicative of the forward march of history. And so logically the freedom to redefine one's bodily identity is essential to the very social contract of liberal political culture. We're talking about respecting the deepest ember of human freedom in other human persons. But then those who deem this act of self-redefinition contrary to the common good or the natural law are themselves implicated as the opponents of the very, of the very principles of political life under modern conditions. They are, in short, the enemies of the common good because of the enemies of freedom under its contemporary conditions. And analogous things can be said, at least for some, who hold to views about artificial reproduction technologies, genetic manipulation of human embryos, and, of course, the right to abortion. These are all litmus test areas of symbolic import because they are considered frontiers of human autonomy with regard to sexuality that modern technology affords. If we refer refer back to Aquinas' analysis, we might say that the desacralization of human sexuality and the denial of its natural finalities of reproduction and education of children leads by a kind of inexorable logic towards the framing of it now in artificial terms, literally as the subject of artistic creativity, meant to expand the range of human options under the power of technology in confrontation with our nature's physical limitations. Basically, the body is given as a kind of material substructure we can and indeed must refashion in in accord with our own desires in a culture of free space. The symbolic cases of controversy regarding sexuality and human liberation are not external to the culture of the Catholic Church. Today, Kajitin would find himself debating not so much with Martin Luther as with Michel Foucault. A recent survey of all the syllabi at Yale Divinity School found that Foucault is the author of the most frequently assigned to students in the past several years. His prevalence in course work is much greater than that of any major Christian thinker, including any modern Protestant thinker. The controversies of our age obviously do affect the laity directly with regard to the neuralgic areas of challenge in marriage, cohabitation, and the cultural contraception as I've alluded to. But, of course, clerical culture is affected in particular by the scandals, thank you, of sexual abuse of minors and adults. The church's great difficulty to respond in justice to poignant cases of priestly misconduct appears to her secular critics to belie her insistence on social justice and chaste temperance in other domains. It seems like a kind of performative contradiction, unless we want to segregate, human sexuality from other things like money, or for that matter, money from sexuality, the coherence of the witness of the church is affected in all these domains because it's defected so deeply in one domain. An analogy exists in the misuse of indulgences in the 16th century. We've moved from clerical power and money to clerical power and sexual abuse, although in my experience, they're never too far away from one another. Luther claimed that under such circumstances, the church could not convey an effective witness to the mercy of God. Today, we could ask, can the church convey a plausible witness to the clerical love of God, to the clerical love of God, the ascending mediation, and the witness of justice to one's neighbor on the part of the men of the church? But actually, behind this, we could also ask, in light of all the sort of reflections I've been giving in the last few minutes, Does the church today truly have a plausible vision of human sexual freedom? Or, in fact, is the secular liberal model of ethics more realistic, precisely because it's so modest? After all, all it requires is the mutual consent of adults, and it need not have any reference to the common good of society or the family. And they can argue at least we're consistent and sincere in the living out of our ethic, unlike some people from which issues the challenge, the question, not how can I found, find a gracious God, but what are the authentic conditions in which human freedom flourishes, particularly with regards to human sexuality? And here we touch a more fundamental question that is neuralgic to our liberal epic, and that I think actually to turn a little bit in towards a more optimistic or hope-filled light, I think the priesthood can help us answer. To address a, a question our own secular colleagues are deeply afflicted by, and that our culture is subject to in its own internal crisis. What, after all, is our human autonomy for? Why are we, after all, free? And why is freedom such a central concern of our culture? It's not an accident that the culture of autonomy, so characteristic of our secular age, is also marked by an ambient philosophical materialism that appeals to the natural sciences so as to argue that human consciousness evolved as a mere accident of evolution. The contemporary ontology of original purposelessness proclaims the primal vanity of human freedom as a mere metaphysical aberration that emerged by chance through the random forces of DNA recombination. Deep down, what we call freedom is nothing but a space that opens up within the interaction of atomic forces, bubbling up into the frontal lobe which we in an illusion of folk thinking call freedom deep down the choices we make have no real ultimate significance but paradoxically this nihilistic intuition of many of our contemporaries is meant to assure the primacy of autonomy unhindered by any reference to necessary purposes or ends especially those which would correspond with the divine wisdom after all In a meaningless universe, no one should be able to tell me what to do. So what does a Catholic Reformation look like in our own era after the revolutions of the 1960s? I suspect that modern Catholic sexuality is going to be different from pre-modern Catholic sexuality, and there's no going back, but perhaps not for the reasons that some might think it's going to be different not because of a fundamental change in the church's teaching regarding human nature or the body but because the modern catholic because of the modern catholic will have to make a choice of the natural in the human body and that that choice of the natural is now going to exist in the face of contestation and in the midst of differentiated social ideologies paradoxically the catholic couple who today follow the teachings of the church in this domain signal an autonomy of freedom In fact, not a conformity to conventions, and in that sense, they are characteristically modern, emphasizing the freedom of the self, even while being deeply Catholic witnesses, to natural human marriage and its ethical dimensions. The couple that choose freely to live chastely before marriage or within marriage, who wed in sacramental sacramental matrimony for life, do so no longer under the force of social pressures, restraining their freedom, but by a free assimilation of the natural ends of marriage in view of a countercultural choice. Their choice is natural, but it's also a decision marked by a very distinctive autonomy in the face of alternative options. We might say their bumper sticker today reads something like free nature or freedom for nature. But what about the priesthood and human freedom? How can Catholic priests today promote an understanding of the real purposes of human freedom in a culture threatened by philosophical materialism, blind consumerism, vague intuitions of cosmic purposelessness. They can do so precisely by bearing witness to the primacy of the love of God as the purpose of human freedom, in the celibate consecration of themselves to Christ. In doing so, they also bear witness to the reality of God as the true horizon of human meaning, one that surpasses the domain of mere sensuality, entertainment, consumption, and politics. Aquinas has an interesting theory for why priests should fittingly be celibate. He does not refer to their utility to the church or the selflessness the practice is meant to instill or even the growth in charity that the sacrifice of a family might entail for them. Instead, he refers to contemplation. The priest is celibate so that he can exist for the contemplation and study of the truth about God for loving prayer to God, and for the communication of the truth about God to others. In short, the priest exists as a symbolic referent to God to the fact that our human freedom exists ultimately for God. This theory, which has its remote origins in Western monastic views, and therefore also has strong alliances with the more general Catholic theology of the religious life, could be questioned by many today, even including some within the episcopacy, but it has a suggestive relevance to our own historical moment. What if the human being can exist freely for something ultimate that transcends the life of the senses as such? Then the materialist idea of a purposeless human existence is false. What if the drive towards human sexual exploration is relative to a yet deeper drive towards religious exploration and the discovery of God in his transcendence as the deepest sense of liberation for the human person? In that case, our freedom to love is first and foremost a freedom for God, made possible by the grace of Christ. The witness of celibate consecration to the truth stands as a visible indication of the possibility of genuine hierarchical priorities in human existence, grounded in the real nature of things. If God alone is truly first, Everything else is second, and only when it's truly understood as second does it acquire its real meaning and innate value, instead of being overly exalted in meaning, only to then become the source of disillusionment. This is true of our human sexuality as well, which in its domains, both sacred and profane, only is rightly lived out as free human sexuality when it's oriented toward and within the acceptance of God. We should note how all this ties in with the vindication of sacramental mediations. If priestly consecration signals to the world that God is first, then it is also a fitting sign that the sacraments that priests celebrate are true instruments of grace that derive their origin from God and that are signs of His presence and activity, loci of holiness manifest in our world. The priest who celebrates the sacraments Worthly does so in loving devotion to God. When the priest truly loves God in his own personal life, the celebration of the sacraments is a more effective manifestation of the activity of Christ in our world. I'm approaching the runway, but give me a little bit more time. When Aquinas talks about the essential features of priestly holiness, he notes at least four. Four. First, the priest is ordained sacramentally by a bishop of the Catholic Church and in doing so receives from God the grace of his state of life. The ordination stems from outside of us, but in some way changes the being of the priest from within by the character of ordination, so that the priest is made capable of serving the church in his whole being. The principal way this occurs is through the celebration of the sacraments and the sacrifice of the Mass. So, if the priest does what the church intends while being in a state of grace and friendship with God, then he is sanctified precisely by acting as a priest. It is precisely in this office and its works that he is invited to a life of friendship with God. Secondly, then, to be holy, the priest must live in a state of grace and orient his own life freely and effectively toward God by means of faith, hope, and charity, as well as the moral virtues, including justice and temperance. It's in this second registry that we can locate the primacy of contemplation a life oriented toward God where everything else is brought into perspective and integration relative to the absolute. Third, the priest has to have prudence not only for himself but also for others so as to counsel others well, especially the laity, but also also religious and other priests in view of their respective end in God. It is not enough for the priest to be personally devoted to God. An effective holy priest has to be able to give advice, and make reasonable evangelical decisions with and for others, so that they can progressively learn and are effectively encouraged to offer their lives to God with practical wisdom. Finally, the priest must be instructed in sacred doctrine and sound philosophical understanding about the human condition. He must not only know the truth and be able to live for it, but also able to speak the truth and explain it to the faithful, and has to take some responsibility for the wider process of the transmission of divine revelation in the life of society. I hope my conclusion is becoming clear. Priests today have to witness to the fact that human freedom has final purposes. In effect, the core error of our age is not about sacramental mediation of grace, though we must take account of that reality, but also about, but primarily about human freedom and what we might call the modern or contemporary heresy of aimlessness. Our secular academic culture is increasingly merely pragmatic, transitioning from an age of enlightenment humanities to one of more modern technological bureaucracy and international commerce. The speculative horizon of human wisdom from the past is shrinking while the practical aims of modern technological culture are expanding we find it increasingly difficult to talk to one another in a a sophisticated and profound way in our political life. This dynamic only augments the drama of human freedom and intensifies the question of why we exist at all, a question our secular contemporaries, including in the academy, are hard pressed to answer. Even with all its contemporary miseries, the Catholic priesthood is of essential importance today above all as a witness to the truth. By his ordination, the priest is a visible sign that the mediation of Christ is present and alive in our world, in the sacramental economy of the church and the visible society of the faithful. By the integrity of his life ordered toward God, the priest conveys the existential and concrete message that one can truly live for God alone above and before all else. By his counsel to others, the priest teaches people how to orient their lives effectively to God in the midst of a dizzying array of human complexities. By his teaching the mystery of Christ and the doctrine of the church, the priest recalls the final destiny of the human person, created in view of the life of grace in this world and the vision of God in the next. In all these ways, the priest stands as a sign of contradiction, against the dignitaries of secularism who promote the false notion that human freedom exists for merely temporal purposes or arbitrary ends. The freedom of the priest to exist for the truth and grace of Christ is itself a source of principal witness amidst the confusions of history that human beings may discover the absolute truth about God and in that truth acquire safe passage towards God as their authentic homeland, the homeland of their being now and for eternity." For the Christian, of course, human freedom finds its most perfect expression in Christ himself, the Son of God, a human being who was most perfectly human and perfectly divine. The human desires and intentions of Christ are irradiated with transcendent significance, expressive of his divine identity, in which he is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The original mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ. And so mediation is in the DNA of the Catholic Church, because she teaches that Christ himself merited our salvation as the great high priest and freely instituted the apostolic hierarchy and the seven sacraments so that we could live in perpetual union with him. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world to sanctify the church and actively safeguard the apostolic deposit of faith that descends from the first era of the church's life down to our own time. It follows from all this that when the, churchhood, when the priesthood is on trial, In a derivative way, it is our acceptance of Christ himself that is at stake. It also follows that the Catholic priesthood can and cannot fail, each in important ways. It can fail because the image of Christ that is meant to be impressed on the soul of each priest can be obscured in more minor or extremely serious ways by the absence of justice, chastity, wisdom, holiness, or zeal in the life of a given person. But by another measure, it cannot fail, since Christ sustains the mystery of the sacramental priesthood in being within the church in every age, so as to remain the one true mediator of all grace within, amidst, and even despite the poverty of his human servants. By his preservation of the infallible truth of the Catholic faith, and by his action in sacramental mysteries over and above our human failings, he, Jesus, is always present, alive, and active. The resplendence of Christ cannot be concealed as his excellence and holiness continue to shine forth in the midst of all things and through all things, safeguarding forever our encounter with him. Jesus continues to raise up holy priests. He calls poor human beings in every age, despite their fragilities, to be conformed effectively to himself, even in the midst of their weaknesses. Peter is archetypal, crucified upside down a paradoxical inversion of Christ, unworthy to imitate him, but still bearing witness to his master, upside down mediating truth to the world, drowning in his own blood. The cross is a living tree, putting out shoots and runners, moving men from within in their hearts and minds in each age to become priests. By its effect, Christian freedom flowers in all its splendor and beauty, as the love of Christ crucified in our world, as the contemplation of the truth, and even in our own era, in these estuaries of life with God that we seek to serve here in the Angelicum and elsewhere, so that we in the Catholic Church may speak to Christ alone, those very words that Cajetan uttered in another context in 1518. Herein, you are constructing a new church. Thank you very much.